listening to audio from Community Bible Church. If you would like to find out more information about us, please visit us at cbcsavannah.com. If you have a Bible, go ahead and turn to Matthew chapter 8. Matthew chapter 8, that's where we're going to be. If you don't have a Bible, we'll have it on the screen or there's one in front of you. You can grab it uh, and find the book of Matthew in there. Uh, it's the first book of the New Testament. If you're a guest of ours, again, glad you're here. We are in a week like 19 or so of a series of, of working through the gospel of Matthew. Uh, we've called it all authority, and that's because that's kind of the theme, and we're going to kind of see that and unpack that. Um, so last week, or a week ago, I came home, and, and my, my wife asked me and the boys if we would rearrange some furniture. Take this couch over here, put this couch over here. Has that ever happened to any of y'all? You know, uh, one, one or two of you honest folks. Um, and so for me... I'm, look, I am the least creative person in the room, and I, could, I, I really don't care about like looks that much. So for me, the couch could stay in the same place for the rest of my life until Jesus returns. I don't care. I just I put it right, actually five feet from the TV. I don't even care, just right there. It doesn't matter how it looks in the room. It's, is it functional? Can I sit there? Can I read there? That, that's, how, that's how I'm wired, right? Uh, but my, my wife is more creative and she cares more about the, the, how, making the house a home. And so every once in a while, we'll rearrange furniture. So we did, we think cast over here. You know, you know. For me, it's just moving the same stuff to a different spot. But for her, there's a purpose and a reason. Okay, this looks good here. There's this table over here, we got this. And so she's thinking through this. I'm just like, seat, man, pizza, you know, kind of thing, that's me. Uh, but there's a reasoning because she is wired that way and, and because she's creative and I'm not. And so there's something that she's trying to accomplish where there's, for me, I'm not trying to accomplish anything. I don't want to accomplish anything. I just want to sit, okay? And when we come to the Gospels, um, it, it's a little bit like that, where the Gospel writers are taking the same stories of Christ's life, the same couches, but they're moving them around a little bit because there's a point, Right? And so we have four Gospels. Three are called the Synoptic Gospels, Matthew, Mark, and Luke. And, and that just basically means they have a lot of the same material in them. John's Gospel is, is almost completely unique to all the material that he presents is unique to his Gospel. But those three, they're, they're basically the same couches and they're just arranging them in different spots. And the reason why is because there's a point to each Gospel. Each Gospel writer has a different audience and a different perspective and a different point. And they're gonna do a little bit different things with the same couches. And so some of them are gonna summarize this point. Some of them are gonna expand on this point. Some are gonna leave this whole thing out. Some are gonna put this here and arrange chronologically. Why? Because there's a point. There's a reason. There's a rationale. They're trying to accomplish something. And when we come to the Gospel of Matthew, what we looked at in the very beginning is the Gospel of Matthew is written to the nation of Israel, to a Jewish audience. And so when he's arranging the couches, that's his perspective. That's what he's trying to accomplish. So he's gonna quote the Old Testament more than any other gospel writer. Why? Because he's trying to show that Jesus of Nazareth is the promised Messiah from the Old Testament. And so where does he start? He starts with the most exciting chapter in the whole book, the genealogy. And he establishes that this one is the one who came from Abraham, Isaac, Jacob, all the way down the line, David, He's establishing who he is. He was born of a virgin, Isaiah. He was born in Bethlehem, Micah, all these things. And so that's how he's arranging the couches. And then where does he go? He goes, Jesus in the wilderness for 40 days, just like Israel in the wilderness for 40 years because he's the identifying Messiah with his nation. And then he comes through the water of baptism, just like they went through the water of, of the Red Sea. 
And then we, we look for 10 or 11 weeks at the, the teaching of this one who has come, the Sermon on the Mount, greatest sermon ever preached. And there's some crazy claims that Jesus is making in this sermon. Things, no one's ever said these kind of things. This is what the law means. This is what I say. This is what I say. And, and the question would be, who can say such things? What gives you the right to make these claims and to make all these statements? And so what Matthew is going to do is, let me tell you what gives him the right. He moves from his teaching to where does his authority come from? And so the next section in this gospel, he's going to give us 10 miracles, 10 miracles, not all the miracles Jesus ever did. In fact, John says that there's so many things he did, you couldn't fill books with the things he did. But he's gonna give us 10 and he's gonna arrange them in different chronological order and different things he's gonna highlight about them than the other gospel writers. Why? Because he's got a point. He's putting the couches over here because he's trying to do something. And what I wanna do today is ask the why. Why does he bring these up here? Why does he do, what he, is, why does he do it like this? What is he trying to for the original audience of the nation of Israel and for us living 2,000 years after, what does he want us to see? What does he want us to grasp? What is he trying to teach us? So that's where we're gonna go today. We're just gonna look at the first three. First three miracles of the, this group of 10. We'll unpack the rest in the next couple of weeks. And then hopefully at the end, after I kind of establish what I feel like Matthew is trying to get across to us, we'll, we'll come with some application for each one of these miracles. So let me read the entirety of his text. 17 verses. And then we'll come back and unpack it slowly. When he, that is Jesus, came down from the mountain, great crowds followed him. And behold, a leper came to him and knelt before him saying, Lord, if you, were, if you will, you can make me clean. And Jesus stretched out his hand and touched him saying, I will be clean. And immediately his leprosy was cleansed. And Jesus said to him, see that you say nothing to anyone, but go show yourself to the priests and offer the gift that Moses commanded for a proof to them. And when he had entered Capernaum, a centurion came forward to him, appealing to him, Lord, my servant is lying paralyzed at home, suffering terribly. And he said to him, I will come and heal him. But the centurion replied, Lord, I am not worthy to have you come under my roof, but only say the word and my servant will be healed. For I too am a man under authority with soldiers under me. And I say to one, go, and he goes. And I say to another, come, and he comes. And to my servant, do this, and he does it. And when Jesus heard this, he marveled and said to those who followed him, truly I tell you, with no one in Israel have I found such faith. I tell you, many will come from east and west and recline at the table with Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob in the kingdom of heaven, while the sons of the kingdom will be thrown into outer darkness. In that place, there will be weeping and gnashing of teeth. And to the centurion, Jesus said, go, let it be done as you have believed. And the servant was healed at that very moment. And when Jesus entered Peter's house, he saw his mother-in-law lying sick with a fever. He touched her hand and the fever left her and she rose and began to serve him. That evening they brought to him many who were oppressed by demons and he cast out the spirits with a word and healed all who were sick. This was to fill what was broken by the prophet Isaiah. He took our illnesses and bore our diseases. So this text picks up right after the Sermon on the Mount. Jesus is coming down the mountain, crowds just following him, following him, right? Great crowds coming down and they're heading back to town and, and Matthew wants you to see what happens. And so he gives this key word, behold, idu in the Greek, see, look, a leper. 
Now, if you grew up in Sunday school, you're like, yeah, I know what leprosy is. But we have a lot of folks here that never been in church. Don't, you know, leprosy is not a disease. It's still around the world, but we can cure it. You gotta understand for them, they hear leper and there is a gasp. <gasps> right? Leprosy is a generic term for a, for a skin disease. But in this case, it was probably what we call Hansen's disease. It's a skin disease that starts real small, but it starts spreading. And the area that is infected becomes numb. And what ends up taking place over time is that you lose fingers, you lose limbs, your body parts start to fall off, you start to become deformed, right? It is a, it is a slow death. And the worst part about leprosy back then, because it was so contagious and because you were now ceremonially unclean, you were cast out of your home and out of your city and out of whatever familiarity you had and you had to go live with the other lepers and now you were isolated from the people who loved you, the people who cared about you. Everything that was dear to you was no longer part of your life. You were outsider, outcast. No hanging out with friends, no seeing your kids, no seeing your parents, no going to temple anymore. You were out done and it was forever it was incurable so if you remember back two years ago about this time in the height of the covid craziness and your kid came home from school and he had a little cold and you went and got you one of those tests and it came back positive and you remember great day in the morning now everybody in the house has to contain at the house for 10 days can't go out of the house can't go to Publix. you know you were the leper right and everyone's scared of you right oh my goodness did you hear so-and-so has COVID? You know, there's spaz, 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 right? And, and your only hope was that you didn't run out of things to binge watch for 10 days. And finally, at the end of 10 days and a negative code to the test and whatever else the government said was necessary at that time, you could come out into freedom. I'm free, right? And you remember that, but you remember just that feeling of, this is crazy, I gotta sit in my room, I gotta stay home. But at least there was some hope, 10 days. These people had no hope. Forever, this was their life. Isolated, lonely. That's how they were going to die, right? That's how they were gonna die. And so picture the scene. They're going, crowds of people. Jesus is coming back into town. Normally when you were a leper, you had to wrap yourself up in clothes. And if, you were, if people were coming near you, you'd have to yell, unclean, unclean, so that they would know you had leprosy. And then they would, they would spread like the Red Sea. It'd be like, and they would get 10 feet out. I mean, you would just kind of walk down and no, one, no one's gonna touch you. No one's gonna get near you. You had to proclaim yourself. This guy's walking towards Jesus. He's not yelling unclean, but you can just imagine the people are spreading. They see him. He's wrapped up like a leper. He looks like a leper. He's full of, Luke's gospel says he's full of leprosy. Luke was a, a doctor. So this guy's in the, in the late stages. I mean, he's probably missing some fingers. It's all over him. He's deformed and he's walking right up to Jesus. And he falls on his knees and he cries out. He makes one statement, but it has three profound truths in it. He says, first, Lord, he is right. He is the Lord. He says, if you will, you can make me clean. He is absolutely right. He can make him clean. He doesn't need to pray for him. He can make him clean like that. The only question is, if you will. And in, in this little statement, he has affirmed Jesus' authority his ability and his sovereignty. If you will, you can make me clean. And then the, the most shocking statement in the entire text, especially for a Jewish audience, Jesus stretched out his hand and touched him. And again, original audience would have been like, he touched him? 
He touched him? The leper? Oh, great. Now he's got to run to CVS, get a rapid leprosy test, right? Now he's infected, right? That's, that's the idea. But I want you to picture this. Remember, Matthew wants you to see it. And I don't want, I, we read the Bible sometimes, it's just like this kind of whatever. This is real. Here's a guy, separated, isolated, going to die. He comes up to the Lord Jesus. He's on his knees, probably with his head down. Lord, if you will, you can make me clean. And then there's that, that pause that seems like 10 seconds, 20 seconds, forever, but it's probably just a fraction of a minute. And something happens. He feels something for the first time in years. He feels a touch. He's never been, he hasn't been touched in years. He hasn't been hugged in years. No one's shaking his hand, holding his child's hand in years. Imagine that moment. I mean, God created the five senses. Remember what they are? I don't. Smell, sight, hearing, touch is one of them. There's one more. What's the last one? There you go. Taste. See, y'all paid attention in third grade. But he gave us the sensation of touch because it's important. This guy hasn't felt it in years, but the first thing he feels is a touch from the Lord Jesus. And as I, in my imagination, I picture he raises his head as he gets his touch and he sees a smiling face of the Savior. And he says, I will be cleansed. And boom, immediately. It's like, you know, Gerber baby skin. It's brand new. And in that moment, this man goes from death, death to life. It is transformative. He is live. His life is restored. And Jesus tells him, see too that you say nothing to anyone. It's not that he doesn't, you know, he's, he's like, oh, you gotta be a secret. The, the point is this, is that when Jesus is healing people, uh, more and more crowds are coming in and it keeps Jesus, it hinders Jesus from going anywhere because there's so many crowds. So he says, don't tell everybody, but here's what I want you to do. Go show yourself to the priest and offer the gift that Moses commanded for proof. And what he's doing here is he's, he's pointing them back to this, this little chapter that's kind of hidden in the middle of Leviticus. Leviticus 14, this kind of long forgotten often ignored chapter where the priest was told, how can you declare someone who has been unclean from leprosy clean? And no one knows about this chapter because it's never used. Because leprosy doesn't get cleansed. It's a death sentence. It's just, it's just there and probably the priests are like, why is this here? I think that God puts it in Leviticus for moments like this, that God heals a leper. And so he goes and he offers his sacrifice and the priest has to recognize this guy was a leper and now he's not. And it says it's proof for them. Why? Because remember, this is written to the, old, to the Jews so, so they would know that the Messiah is here. They're supposed to recognize, wait, this has never happened before. And now it's happened. Something's going on here and the priest should be like, we gotta go investigate. But instead, what do they do? We see, they resist, they oppose but it's a testimony for Israel that Messiah is here. Remember, Jesus comes first to the, to the Jew and then to the Gentile. And so that's what's going on. That's the first miracle. Let's look at the second one. He entered Capernaum, which is kind of his headquarters, and a centurion came forward to meet him. A centurion is a, a Roman soldier that is over 100 soldiers. So he's kind of like a high-ranking NCO. Think first sergeant, for those of you in the military. Think sergeant major, that kind of guy. He's got authority. He's not an officer, but he's kind of an important guy. And his job is to keep the peace. 
He is a Gentile. He is an outsider. He is an oppressor. He's technically the enemy of the state. But this centurion, it says, came forward to him. Now, here's where you have to, you have to understand that, that Matthew is arranging the couches in a certain way. When you go to Luke's gospel, Matthew's very short with his details. Luke expands this. He gives a lot more details. Here's why. Remember, Luke's gospel is written to the Gentiles. So when there's a Gentile involved, Luke's gonna be major expansive. And so what we find out from the gospel of Luke is this guy actually doesn't personally come, but he sends Jewish emissaries, right? Now, Matthew summarizes it and says, he came. You say, well, isn't that a contradiction? No, we do this all the time, that these men are representatives of him. So it's in essence, he is there. So we, get, we see it in the news all the time. The president announced today that blah, 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 blah. And what that means is the press secretary or someone in his staff came out and announced as a representative. That's what's going on here, right? So he sends these, these Jewish men who are fond of him because this guy actually was a, a friend of the Jews. He actually helped build the synagogue in their town. And he's got a sick servant, literally a boy, probably a young Jewish boy that he cares deeply about, which again shows this guy's unique. He's a Roman and he cares about this young Jewish boy and he's paralyzed and he's suffering. And so he says, could you guys go see if Jesus would even consider healing, and they come to Jesus and they ask him, he says, I will come, I'm on it, I got it. And when, when the centurion hears this, look at his response, it's amazing. Verse eight, the centurion replied, Lord, I am not worthy to have you come under my roof. Only say the word and my servant will be healed. He's like, no, 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 I didn't mean you had to come, Jesus. I, I, didn't, I didn't want you to come. See, this guy knows the intricacies of Jew and Gentile and all these customs, and that if Jesus would enter into this guy's house, he immediately loses face with the Jews, but he also becomes ceremonially unclean. So he's like, no, no, I didn't mean you actually had to come. I'm not worthy of you to come to me, Jesus. Which, think about that statement. He's, the, he's in charge. He's the oppressor. He's got the authority. And he's telling this, this somebody from Nazareth, this just normal Jewish guy that he's not worthy. Think about the humility of that statement. And I was thinking about it yesterday as I was running, actually. It kind of hit me that we live in a world in a culture, let's be honest, we all think that we're worthy, don't we? I don't deserve this. I deserve this. I'm worthy of this. You should treat me like this. Here's a guy that actually is, has some respect and has some, some authority, and he says, I'm not worthy. And then the second statement is even more amazing. He says, I, I understand what authority is, Jesus. I tell guys go, they go. I tell his guys come, they come. I'm a soldier, I get it. I have authority. And since I know that you have authority, you don't actually have to come to my house to heal this guy. You can actually, from the place that you're at, you can just speak it and I know that it will happen because you have authority. That, think about that statement. First of all, leprosy hasn't been really healed ever yet. Not, not, not in the gospels. But secondly, it's, I mean, excuse me, somebody being paralyzed. But secondly, no one has ever been healed from like four miles down the road. I mean, you know, someone comes up and prays for him, lays hands on him. Oh, look, that, that's a miracle enough. What he's saying is, I believe that you can heal my paralyzed servant from a distance by just speaking. It's, it's an amazing statement, which is why it says Jesus' response. When Jesus hears this, he marvels. So he says, truly, I, I tell you, I, with no one in Israel... Have I found such faith? Which is a great statement because who's with him right now? Peter, James, John. And he's like, nobody has faith like this guy. And they're thinking, what are we, chop liver? I mean, where are we? 
You know? No one has faith like this guy. He says, I tell you, many will come from the east and the west. He's talking about Gentiles. And recline at the table with Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. These are the heroes of the Old Testament, the patriarchs. Because remember, remember this is a, to a Jewish audience now. Remember it in that context. He's saying, there's gonna be Gentiles and Gentiles and Gentiles, all these Gentiles at the kingdom. And they're gonna be eating with Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. They're all gonna be sitting at the same table. And there's gonna be those who are the, of the, the nation of Israel. And they're not gonna be in the kingdom. They're gonna be thrown into the outer darkness in the place that there's weeping and gnashing. Those of you, th- see, they, they thought just because they were Israel that they were good. He's like, no, 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 it's not about being Israel or not being Israel. There's gonna be plenty at the banquet table in the kingdom that were outsiders. And there's gonna be plenty who thought they were insiders that are not inside. This is what he talked about last week, right? I never knew you. And here, I remember, again, Jesus speaks about judgment more than any else in the entire Bible. But what just, just stands out about this text is that those who are outside, those who are cast out in the lake of fire, he said there's weeping and gnashing of teeth. There's an awareness. There's an awareness in hell that it didn't have to be this way. It's not annihilation. It's awareness of I could be in the kingdom, but I'm not because I didn't respond to the gospel. But the irony of the entire text is that the man who says, I'm not worthy, Jesus, to, for you to even come into my house, where's he sitting? He's at the banquet table with Jesus. Why? Because blessed are the poor in spirit. Theirs is the kingdom of heaven. That's where Sermon on the Mount started, right? And so Jesus marvels at this man's faith. And sure enough, it happens as he, as he asks, go, let it be done as you believe. The servant was healed that very moment. Healed, was paralyzed, now he's walking. Then we have the last one, the quickest of the miracles. And when Jesus entered Peter's house, he saw his mother-in-law lying sick with a fever and he touched her hand and the fever left her and she rose and began to serve. And we find out that Peter from this passage is married, which we don't, wouldn't have known unless we had something like this. So we don't know who Mrs. Peter was, but apparently if Peter was the first Pope, he didn't know the rule that you're not supposed to be married, okay? So, uh, but he's got a wife. He apparently takes her on some of his missionary journeys, Paul says in 1 Corinthians, but she's sick. She's got a fever. Maybe it's a big fever, maybe it's a small fever, but what they would have expected is they came home, this, we find out that this miracle from Luke is on the, on the Sabbath. They come home, they would expect you know, their feet to be washed and then a meal to be prepared and there's no feet washed and there's no meal prepared and they ask maybe why, what's going on? And well, you know, she's sick, she's, she's not feeling well, she's in the other room laying down. And so Jesus walks in and touches her hand. Why her hand? I don't know. It's easiest access. It, it, he uses the same word for touch, but the fever's not in her hand. But as soon as he touches her, it goes from 101.6 to 98.6. And she gets right up. And you, you've ever had fever and it breaks and you're finally like, you feel, you feel lousy, but you're glad the fever's gone, but you have no energy. She's got energy. I mean, she becomes like the servant of the year. She becomes the hostess of the year. And she just starts serving and cooking. And she's like, let's make lamb chops and let's go. Come on, she's, she's, she's got a big old buffet. For, for Jesus and the apostles. And then that evening, because it's a Sabbath and when the, the sun goes down, then they can start moving around again. They brought him many who were oppressed by demons and he cast out with a word and he healed all who were sick. And here's, again, his point. This was to fulfill what was spoken by the prophet Isaiah. He took our illnesses and bore our diseases. He quotes from Isaiah 53, one of the most famous messianic prophecies. Here's the entire prophecy. Surely our, he bore our griefs and carried away our sorrows, yet we esteemed him stricken, smitten by God and afflicted. He was pierced for our transgressions, 
crushed for our iniquities. Upon him was the chastisement that brought us peace. And with his wounds, we are healed. And then the next verse, all we like sheep have gone astray. Each one has gone his own way. The Lord laid on him the iniquity of us all. Again, he's highlighting this is Messiah. Messiah would be identified not just with the forgiveness of sins, he would heal men. And there's a, there's a link with the authority to heal, the authority to forgive sins. And we're gonna see that in chapter nine in a few weeks. But his point, remember, is to highlight, this is what Messiah would do. This is why he heals people. Because he's identifying himself to the nation of Israel, I am here. Now, does that mean for us that all healing is guaranteed because Jesus died? Because there'll be some that'll tell you, well, healing is guaranteed in the atonement. And the answer to that is kinda. Healing is guaranteed in the atonement in the resurrection. That's where it's guaranteed. But this side of, of the kingdom, this side of Jesus' return, Christians get sick. Christians get cancer. Christians have heart attack. Does God still heal? He absolutely still heals. Absolutely. But is it guaranteed that he heals this side? Not always. Didn't heal Peter. I mean, didn't heal Paul when he begs God to remove his thorn in the flesh. He says, my grace is sufficient. Ultimate healing comes in the resurrection. That's what Jesus achieved for us in the atonement. But for now, sometimes God chooses to heal, sometimes he doesn't. But the point is that he meets this, this simple need, uh, what profound, and he heals Peter's mother-in-law. So there's your three miracles. Why these three? I mean, why are these the first three? This, Luke has these in different order, so does Mark. Some much later than the others. So why does he pick and choose He's all these miracles he could do. Why does he put these three first? Why does he put the couches like this? What is he trying to get us to see? And whenever you come to study the scriptures, the first question you need to ask is what does this teach me about God? Because we always jump to, what do I need to do? What do I need to do? Do, 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 do. And there's, we, look, we need to have application. But application is always rooted in what does this teach me first about God? Because what, what I believe about God dictates everything else. And so let me give you three things to think on what this passage highlights, what it teaches us about God. Why does he arrange these things this way? First is this. Remember, in the context of Jewish gospel, in the context of uh, trying to show people his authority and who he is, the first thing is there's a lot of language here that ties you back to the Old Testament. It just does. Right? He, think about this. He's gonna put 10 miracles together. She chooses 10. You think he's just like, yeah, 10's a good round number. Or is there any significance for 10 for the Jewish nation? Right? How many plagues did uh, Moses bring in, in Exodus? 10? Okay, if you said nine, you fail the test, okay? How many commandments? 10, okay, good. Some of you are awake now. So there's significance. He's tying this back to, hey, this is one who is like Moses, but he's distinct. Like the writer of Hebrews says, he's worthy of much more glory than Moses. He's a son. He's not a builder in the house. He is the house. Because who speaks? Who in the Old Testament speaks and something happens? Let there be light. And there was light. Who creates, who makes something that is dead and brings it to life? Who touches something and brings life from it? Remember in the creation narrative, God creates everything in the universe. Let there be light, let there be land, let there be sea. But when he creates man and woman, what does he do? He touches, he goes down for men, he goes in the dirt. So men, he goes in the, you're made of dirt. And he goes in the, he takes dirt and he fashions the man. 
He touches it. He brings death to life. And then for, for the women, he takes a rib out of the side of Adam and he fashions it with his touch. Who speaks and creates, who touches and brings death to life, God. And what Matthew is trying to say is when Jesus is speaking, when he's moving, when he's commanding, when he's acting, where, you wanna know where his authority comes from? It comes from God because he is God. This is not just a guy. This is Yahweh. This is the God man. This is the one who came from heaven. He was born in Bethlehem, but his origins are far beyond that from eternity past. He is God. So when he speaks and he directs and he says, this is what the law means and this is what I say, truly I say to you, it's God speaking. And we keep coming back to this concept of authority. And the reason why is because we hate, as Americans, authority. I bet at least half of y'all parked illegally this morning because you hate authority. And you didn't want to walk 10 more feet, so you parked, parked the opposite way on a street because you don't, wanna, you don't care. Because we hate authority. And, we, and, and that's a silly way, but in the church, what, we see, what I see more and more of in the church, especially in America, is, well, I, just don't, I don't know if I agree with the Bible here. I don't agree with the scriptures. I don't know if I believe that. Let me just be very honest and upfront. God really doesn't care if you believe it or not. He's not asking you that, to, to, well, I, you have to agree with him. He's asking us to follow and to trust. And if God speaks, he speaks with authority. When Jesus says something, it's absolutely true. When the scripture is clear on something, it is clear. Whether you wanna agree with it or not, and that's an important principle that's gonna go out through the rest of the scripture. But God is establishing the authority of Jesus here by showing, hey, this is God. Second thing, and this is, I think this is the, the one that's the most interesting to me. Um, if you think about the three people that Jesus heals here, in the context of the Old Testament, these were outsiders. They were the less thans. They were the, the, the devalued leper, Gentile, and, and, a, and an older woman. I mean, it's kind of like, yeah, but they're, they're on the outside. And think about it in the context of the, the temple and temple worship. Remember, the presence of God was seen and understood to be in that temple. And, and none of these folks had access to it. And he, what he does is, it's interesting, he works from the, those who were the furthest out to even those who were the closest and showing that none of them had access under the old covenant to God. Think about the leper. Where would the, here's a, here's a model of the, of the Herodian temple. This is the temple that Jesus would have walked in. This is the city of, of, of Jerusalem in that day. That big old structure there. Okay, see how, how large that is. Where could the leper go in that building? Nowhere. He can't even come into the city. He's gotta stay outside. He, how is he ever gonna get to the presence of God? He can't. The only thing the law can do for that guy is show him that he's sick. It's the only thing the law can do. What about the Gentile? What about the Roman? What about him? Okay, he has a spot he can go to. Here's a little kind of zoomed in. See that big area, that kind of concrete area looks like a parking lot? That is called the court of the Gentiles. If you were a Gentile, you could go there and you could stand there and hang out there, but that's as close as you could get. And these walls are huge. You can't see over them. Unless you're Clint, you cannot see over these walls. Okay. I would, if I was there, I would never be able to see what goes on in there. Never. That's as close as I can. In fact, there's, we've, we've, they've excavated uh, these kind of tablets all over. This is a, one example. It's in a, a museum somewhere 
I think in, uh, in Turkey right now, it says, this is what this says in Greek. It's foreigners must not enter inside the balustrade or into the forecourt around the sanctuary. Whoever is caught will have himself to blame for his ensuing death. That was posted all around so that no Gentile would go into that building. Okay, so neither of them can get close. What about if you were a Jewish woman? What about Peter's mother-in-law? How, how close could she get? Okay, see that? This is a, even more zoomed in, all right? See that big thing that looks like the kind of Arc de Triomphe in Paris, right? That's, that's the holy place and the most holy place. That little section to the bottom, uh, that is called the Court of Women and the Court of Israel. So if you were a Jewish woman, you could go into that, room, that little area right there, but see that little door? It's in the middle. You can't go by that door. That's only Levites and priests and the high priest. Those are the only ones that can go in. So even if you were a Jewish woman, you could not get into the presence of God. The law kept you away. And so what does, again, think about Matthew's order. He goes from furthest to nearest and still none of them have access. So what does the Lord Jesus do? He comes to the one who is the most far away and he touches him. He touches him and he cleanses him and he takes, what it, think about what happens there. Jesus doesn't become unclean, that guy becomes clean. That is exactly what the gospel is, that Jesus becomes our sin and we become his righteousness. It's a picture of what's gonna happen to the one that's the furthest away, the one that's the most defiled, the outcast. What does he do to the Gentile, to most of us? He says, you are on the outs. Now you're at my table. You're with Abraham, Isaac, these are my boys, and you're with them. What does he do to the older woman who everyone sees as insignificant and not important? He goes and meets her in her, in her just simplest need, and he touches her, and he affirms her that he cares. See, this is, what, this is the type of Messiah he is. He is one who draws near to everyone. He gives everyone access. This is why when Christ is crucified, the temple veil that's in that big building there, there's a veil in there that separates the holy place from the most holy place. Only the high priest could go in. That veil is torn from top to bottom showing access now is for all of us. You can approach the throne of grace. Why? Because the lamb has been slain. And now anyone, it doesn't matter if you're a leper an older woman or a Gentile, you have access to God through Jesus Christ. And Matthew is highlighting that right here in just a simple way that they would get. And I want you to see, because we have folks here, you're a leper, you're an outcast, you are defiled, you are a sinner, and Jesus says, come. Some of you are a Gentile and you've lived the life of a Gentile and you, he says, come. Some of you feel insignificant and ignored and Jesus says, come. Come to me, all who are weary and heavy laden, and I'll give rest. And I wanna be clear here. Jesus welcomes all, and he says, come as you are. But when you come as you are, he's not gonna let you stay as you are. Because there's a lot in the world, that, oh, Jesus doesn't care about this, just come, come, come to him, and he doesn't care. He, you, you are welcome to come to him, but he is going to change you from the inside out, because that is what he does. It's not come as you are, live as you want. It's come as you are, and deny yourself, and take up your cross daily, and follow him, because he gives access to all. And because the third thing, he is a compassionate God. He's compassionate. Again, he dignifies the leper. He invites the centurion. He affirms Peter's mother-in-law, because he's compassionate. That is the type of Messiah he is. He removes your sin, he removes your leprosy. 
He can create from a distance. He validates every one of us. Doesn't matter where you've been. He has authority, he gives access, and he has compassion. So what's the application in light of who God is? Let me give you one word from each of them and then we'll worship. Uh, The word from the leper is testimony. The leper was told to give proof or another translation would be testimony that that he's clean. And don't take too much of don't go tell anybody. The reason Jesus tells them not to tell anybody because he doesn't want the crowds coming just so that they can get something from, from him and so that doesn't hinder him. Because at the end of this gospel, he's not saying don't tell anybody anymore. He's saying tell everybody. Go and tell. Acts 1.8, you are my witnesses, Jerusalem, Judea, Samaria, ends of the earth. God does not want any 007 Christians. He's not looking for secret agent Christians. He says, now you are to let your light shine before men. And, and you know, you can't, you can't fault the guy for telling. He, he ends up, Jesus says, don't tell anybody. He ends up telling everybody. Can you fault him? I mean, really, some of you can't even have a good meal without posting it on Instagram, okay? This guy was dead and now he is alive. If you were healed of stage four cancer, they gave you three months to live, and all of a sudden you come in and the doctor says, it's clear, I, I can't understand it. Would you not say anything to somebody? Amen. So that's the whole point. That's what God has done for you. When he took away your spiritual fever, he made you alive. And he says, now, live as an ambassador for Christ. Let your light shine before men, that they may see your good works and glorify. And so I challenge you all in the beginning of the year, who, that one person that you're praying for, do you still have that one? Have you thought about them in a while? That one person that you're, you're trying to, to serve, to, to witness to, to, to see God do something in their lives. Maybe it's one of your kids. Maybe it's your parents. Maybe it's your brother. Maybe it's your boss. Whoever it is. Maybe Easter's in like two weeks. Maybe you could invite them to come to, to worship with you on Easter. Maybe they'd be open to that. I don't know. But, but your job is to testify that God has made you alive. That's the lesson for the leper. Why? Because he gives access to all, because he's told you to do so, and because he's a compassionate God. Second, word is the word faith. The centurion made God marvel. Think about that. God marveled at his faith. And it, it only says Jesus marvels of two things in the, in the gospels, at, at faith and lack of faith. There's something about faith that either when, when the disciples are in the boat and they're spazzing out because it, it seems like they're going to go down and then Jesus is like, Y'all, where is your, I'm like, God is right here. Where is your faith? He rebukes them. He rebukes uh, Israel because he, he marvels at their lack of faith. But this guy, he says, what faith? And again, he has such limited knowledge, y'all. What does he have? He hears there's a guy who can heal. He puts two and two together and he has amazing faith. We have the entirety of God's word and we're worried that, you know, what's gonna happen? What's gonna happen with this and this? You wanna make God marvel. Take God at his word. Without faith, it is impossible to please God. God is more after your faith than he is your money and your gifts and your Bible study and you're coming to church and you're doing good stuff. Because anyone can do that. But faith is the assurance of things hoped for, the conviction of things not seen. This guy had never seen Jesus, yet he believes. We've never seen Jesus. We are called to walk by faith. And that's That's hard. Why? Because we want to see. We want to see. But when you can step out in faith and say, you know what? I feel like God's calling us to do that 
And that doesn't make sense because our bottom line is this, but I feel like this is where God is leading us. And when you step out in faith, you know what God does? Says, that is awesome. That pleases me. I'm gonna show up in that guy's life. When you, when you pray big things, when's the last time you prayed something big? I mean, like big. Not like, thank you for this food. Uh, traveling mercies, you know, to the Walmart. You know, I'm not talking, I'm talking about big. Like, if God doesn't show up, then it don't happen big. God is honored when his people are like, you're a great God. I can, I can expect you to do great things in my life, in our church's life. I mean, maybe we don't see big things happen because we don't expect big things because we don't really think God is great. Is he? When you feel like everyone is over this, doing this and I know this is sin. All the boys in my frat are doing this. All the people in my office are doing this. Everyone in my family is going this way. I know this is sin. I'm, I'm scared to stand alone. But you do it anyway, God honors that. That's faith. There's a million ways that you can take God at his word. That's what faith is, taking God at his word. And if you wanna see God marvel, you wanna please our heavenly father, it's faith. Here's the last one. Simple one, serve. This is probably the easiest application, right? She is brought from sickness to health and what does she do? She serves. God has made you alive, not so that he can continue to serve you so that you can serve him and serve others, right? That's, that's, what, that's what we're called to do. It's real simple. He made you alive so that you would serve him and serve others. That's what she does. She serves Jesus, she serves the apostles. And so the question is, where are you serving God and where are you serving others? That's, you gotta figure that out. There's a bazillion ways. I'm not talking about, I'm not talking about Sunday mornings. I mean, we need folks on Sunday mornings. That's, that's yes. Uh, want you on a team, hospitality, children, whatever. But I'm talking about just as a life, serving God, serving people. Where? And service is not easy. Okay, can we, can we acknowledge that it's, serving is sacrificial. Here's a lady, she's been in bed for eight hours, shivering, oh, I'm cold, yeah. and she gets up and she serves. That's not necessarily easy. Sometimes service is hard, but that's the point. But we do it because God made us alive and he made us alive so that we would serve him and serve others. And so the, this, is, this is why this is here. He says, this is authority and accessibility and he is compassionate so that you would walk in faith, so that you would serve him, right? So that you would testify to him. And I, I wrote this down this morning as I was just like five minutes before I preached the first service. All right, if I th think about the simplicity of that. He's authority, he's compassionate, he gives us access. Why? So that we would believe, so that we would testify so that we would serve. That's, that's super simple and foundational of the Christian life, isn't it? That's what, that's what we do. We believe, we testify, we follow. That's, that's what he's doing here. And I, and I want you to see that up front. This is why he's arranging the couches. He wants you to understand his authority. He wants you to understand he gives you access. He wants to understand there's compassion. Why? So you'd serve him, so you'd believe him, so you'd testify to him, right? That's why the couches are where they're at. So let me pray and we'll kind of respond in worship. And uh, I told the first service, I reminded them, you guys can stand. The reason why we sing after uh, we hear the word is not just because we're trying to you know, fill up time, uh, get you a good encouraging song before they leave. It's an opportunity for you to respond, to, to think on, I and mean, you might not sing, you might just sit there and pray, and maybe one of these points came out more than another, maybe none of them are, I, I don't know. But it's an opportunity for you to just reflect. We don't do this well as Americans, we're in a rush. 
We wanna go, 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 go. And I'm the worst. I'm thinking about next Friday. I'm probably thinking about next week's sermon already kind of thing. That's, but to just sit for a moment and let the Holy Spirit who lives in you, who is here with us right now, just impress upon your heart, hey, this is what I want from you. And that's why we have a little bit extended time afterwards, just to give you some time to sit in that. So use this to draw near to God. And what is the promise? This is how you can walk in faith. He draws near to you. If you were like, oh, you don't know where I've been, Bill. You don't know my week. I know you weren't as bad as a leper. And Jesus touches the leper and cleanses. Again, you can come to him because he brings access through what Christ has done. So use this time to just respond in whatever way is appropriate. Let me pray. Father, just speak to us through your word. Thank you that you have uh, given us access to yourself through Christ. Thank you that you have loved us first. And we as a response love you back. Uh, And I just pray your spirit would illumine what we need to hear each one of us, whether it's unique to us or to the whole group. Just, Just reveal that to us now as we respond in worship. In Jesus' name I pray.